Greetings from the Classic City. I am Jamie Cheek, and this is 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It has been a few weeks since I have put out an episode, and right at the top of today's episode, I feel like I have to explain myself a little bit. Um, I, I, like probably many of you, just ran out of gas when it came to the time immediately following the first debate. Uh, As much as I really enjoy politics, I like good politics. And as I've talked about on the podcast a little bit before, in my mind, what good politics is, is good arguments, good strategy, uh, doing things purposefully to try to get an intended outcome. Um, What I feel like we've seen for the majority of this election cycle, despite the fact that the the cycle has been completely thrown for a loop, just like everything else in American life when it comes to the pandemic. Despite all of that, what we've seen is some consistently bad politics. And so after that first debate, the complete and utter debacle that it was, you know, it was so funny afterward. There were three people, there were three characters on that night of the first debate. You had the president, you had Vice President Biden, and you had uh, the unfortunate soul of Chris Wallace, who was expected to moderate. And so afterward, everybody needed somebody to blame. You had a lot of people uh, on the right blaming Chris Wallace for uh, being poor at moderating. You had a lot of people on the left blaming the president for being just poor in general with the way that he handled things and the way he acted. Um uh, Interestingly enough, not many people, right or left, attacked Vice President Biden, which, if you watched any of the coverage after um, the debate, that kind of myth that Biden won, you know, I think the, the cliche thing that you heard from everybody is that America lost, which is essentially just a pundit's way of saying that, well, that was just a complete and total waste of time, but they're supposed to sound smarter than that. So they're not able just to come back from, we've just done an hour and a half of the debate. We come back and I've got to say something about it now. It's like, well, that was uh, pointless. Let's cut the show off right now and go. Like, they got to talk about something. So everybody wanted to talk about all the yelling, all the interrupting. They wanted to pretend like the president was the only one doing any interrupting, which he wasn't. They wanted to act like the president was the only one that wasn't answering questions. But, of course, he wasn't. Unfortunately for the president, he's just very bad at being a politician. And a lot of the people that support him feel like that's why they like him. Because he's not polished, because he doesn't come through and say everything exactly right. They think that he's a straight shooter and that he's telling it like it is. Um, I don't know how much I buy into that. I, I buy into it very, very little, honestly. I feel like through this election cycle, there's been multiple things. I've written a couple of them down here. I think the way he's handled the pandemic has been poor, not necessarily from a policy standpoint, but a rhetoric standpoint. You know, why has this president, we are now a week away or less than a week away from the election, as I record this on Wednesday. The fact that this president has decided that it is worth risking his re-election over a, a topic like masks is insane to me. I mean, it is the most divisive issue in this election cycle. It's been able, we've been able to boil it all down to a mask. People who say that they follow science and the liberals have said that masks would fix everything. 
I'm, I'm simplifying, of course. Please don't be offended by that. But they have been ardent supporters from the beginning of masks, whereas the president is hot and cold on masks. He goes back and forth. Sometimes he wears them. Sometimes he doesn't. At White House functions, sometimes they have everybody with masks on. Sometimes they don't. It. He's been very inconsistent in that. And it's opened the door in a political way for him to be attacked about that. And it just baffles me that he has allowed something that I'm not saying it's insignificant in the fight of the pandemic. I am saying it's insignificant in what we should be debating, the big issues of today. It shouldn't come down to a mask. And yet that's what he's allowed this to become is a fight about masks. And then there's a couple other things. I mean, obviously, during we just referenced the first debate, the Proud Boys comment was stupid. You know, afterward, everybody said he never renounced uh, hate groups. He did, but he didn't do it in a very direct way. And then he made his stupid comment about Proud Boys, and it just, it was absolutely unforced. It was unnecessary. It gained him nothing. And I think from a politics standpoint, what I look for in I say good politicians, not like morally good politicians, but effective politicians. What I look for are people who have the ability to win you to their side the more you listen to them. And I think for both of these candidates, the more you listen to them, the more you want to vote for somebody else. And in in truth, a lot of the times, you know, in, in, in political races, who has the last word? Who can get that last message out seems to have a big effect on any voters that may be undecided at the last minute. But in this situation, I think the most effective thing for either candidate to do in in these last few days leading up to the election would be like buy 30 minutes of primetime on a network and just play things that the opponent has said. Because if I sit there and I listen to Donald Trump talk for 20 or 30 minutes, I can't stand Donald Trump. But then likewise, if I listen to to Joe Biden talk for 20 or 30 minutes, I'm thinking, how in the world can anybody be considering voting for this man? It's insane that the best political strategy that either one of these candidates could have probably and still could possibly, you know, their best way to get votes here at the end would be to be quiet. And I think that says a lot about this entire race. Going back to Trump. The lock them up thing. I, he, he, he only did it for a couple of days, but there were some rallies. You know, in 2016 and leading up to the election, there was a lot of talk about Hillary and the servers and the computers and the email and all of that kind of stuff. And the chant lock her up was something that was heard at almost all Trump rallies by the end of the 2016 presidential cycle. And a couple of weeks ago, after the first debate, before the, the second and final debate, a couple of weeks ago, he started that stuff, or I guess maybe the crowd started it, and his response to the lock him up, I mean, obviously it was him up instead of her up this time, but his response was, well, lock them all up. And he never really clarified who them was, but I think it's pretty clear he means his opponents, Democrats. And, you you know, not to be reactionary, but you've got the sitting president of the United States saying that we should lock up his opponents. And if that doesn't scare you just a little bit, you're not paying attention. Now, on the other side, <laughs> Vice President Biden has been in a, an election cycle where so many people, and I, I think this is a fair statement, there are a lot of people in this country who are just turned off by Trump. 
either by his politics, which I mean, you know, if you're a Democrat or if you're a liberal, you're not going to vote for Trump because of his politics. But I think there's a lot of people in the middle and a lot of people on the right who might have been open to voting for a different candidate based on Trump's demeanor, based on his style, the way he does things. And if you were looking for a strong alternative, I, in my opinion, I don't think you found it in Vice President Biden with the way he's done things. You know, court packing. Well, I'll tell you what I think about that afterward. When pressed on it a week or two later, if I tell you what I want to do with court packing, it's going to be the headline in every paper tomorrow. He said that. So essentially, you had a person that's running for president say, I can't tell you what I think because you may report on it. How does that make any sense? He also has had very bad answers on the Green New Deal, on defending defunding the police on on other topics. And at the end of the day, the reason I say they've been bad answers, he's been attacked by Trump on on Green New Deal. He's been attacked by Trump on defunding the police. And his his answers that he has given in those situations, the first debate and even a little bit in the second debate, though it wasn't nearly as contentious, his answers have lacked conviction. And for all of the people out there leading up to the, the general election here, who thought that Biden was a puppet and that he's being controlled by the left, his his reactions and the way he is engaged during the campaign has not done anything to make people feel like that wasn't the case. Joe Biden constantly, to me, seems like somebody who's going out there and trying to say what other people are telling him to say. Now, obviously, both candidates have advisors. Both people are getting told, hey, we should say this. We should stay away from that. What I'm saying is when I listen to Joe Biden, I don't hear somebody who really believes what he's saying. I hear somebody who is out there trying to not say something wrong. And that is not the kind of person that most people want to vote for. So in this election, rather than having a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. What I think we really ended up with and what we do end up with is, am I going to vote for Trump or am I going to vote against Trump? And I think most people have made up their mind on that, and that's fine. But I do think that it's a huge miss for the Democrats that they allowed it to be that. This this election, going back to the primary, the number one uh, goal for Democrats when in exit polling in the early primary states, the number one thing, what's the number one priority? beat Trump. That's what Democrats said coming out of polls in Iowa, New Hampshire, all of those early states, South Carolina, all of those early states. It was the number one priority. Over 60% of that electorate said coming out of the primary, the number one priority is beating Trump. And yet they failed to nominate a candidate that they could get behind. And essentially the best that they've been able to do is keep that kind of mentality. Well, it's not about X, Y, or Z. It's about beating Trump. So we're going to vote against Trump. And so if the election goes to Trump, if Trump wins re-election, the Democrats are going to have to really look themselves in the mirror and ask how they managed to mess this up. I think coming out of 2016, most people who are you know, politically astute would have looked at it and said, how did Hillary Clinton, one of the most experienced politicians, you know, from her time as first lady, but going back as first lady of Arkansas, you know, 
being that close to a president, a two-term president, an effective two-term president that Bill Clinton was, how is somebody with all the political experience that Hillary Clinton had, how does she lose to a guy who was on TV three and four years before he became president? And the answer was they completely underestimated Trump. And here we are four years later, and the Democrats have four years of Trump's record to try to run against. And yet again, I feel like they've completely underestimated Trump. And not only that, they completely underestimated Trump voters. They want to cast the Trump voter as somebody that's dumb and racist and completely politically disengaged. And I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's accurate at all. I think there's a lot of people who were open to voting for someone else if they'd have been given an alternative. And the reality is, in an election where you have a old white man running for the Republicans, the Democrats candled with an old white man. It's it, It's been such a frustrating process because neither one of these candidates are talking about issues. Neither one of these candidates are talking about a vision for the future. Both of these candidates consistently just talk about each other and how crappy the other person is. I don't think either one of them is making a legitimate argument to the people of why you should vote for them. They are simply explaining how bad things would be with the other guy. And it's just not a brand of politics that I enjoy or a brand of politics that I think, frankly, is befitting an American presidential election. So. That is uh, a very long-winded way uh, of saying that it's been hard for me to talk about and think about this election for the last few weeks because I've just been so annoyed with how poor these candidates have been doing when it comes to just, just being politicians. You know, I've tried my best to keep my political point of view out of the podcast, just to try to focus on the numbers and the facts. But I didn't feel like I could effectively do that. I don't know that I've effectively done that here in the introduction today, but I didn't feel like I could do it for the last few weeks. And that's why there haven't been more podcasts, but we're back now. I'm back now. And so after a little bit of an explanation, let's hop in. Let's talk now about where we are in the polling, what it's showing us, and what could potentially happen next. So on my uh, on my notes that I have for the podcast today, I have written down this section where we're going to start talking about the Electoral College and where things stand right now. I've written it down and titled it The Narrow Road. And the reason I've called it that is because if you're a supporter of President Trump, and, and I want to go ahead and caution from here on out, you, you to effectively communicate polls and to effectively kind of ramp up where the Electoral College is right now, I felt like it was going to be necessary to pick one perspective and build on it. So, you know, from a, a Democratic perspective right now, from a Joe Biden perspective, you have to be feeling good. Had 2016 not happened. And when I say that, what I mean is, had the polling not been so wrong in 2016, then Democrats would be planning celebration parties next Tuesday, hand over fist, because on paper, this election looks like it is over. So to me, it was not interesting at all to try to kind of walk the road of, okay, from a Biden point of view, 
how do you get to 270? Well, from a Biden point of view, you just trust the polls, hope to God they're right, and you're going to have a fairly significant electoral win. So as I speak about all of the polling and the different ways that I kind of put things for the rest of the podcast today, I want to just go ahead and say it's going to be from the Trump perspective, not because I love the president, not because I'm a closet Republican. I am a Republican. I also don't love the president. So it's not because of that. It's because that's the only interesting way to talk about this election at this point, because if the polls are right, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. So we'll say that up front. Now, the if the polls is right part <laughs> is, after 2016, almost ludicrous to think that they are. And we'll get to some of that later. So just a little context, you know, 270towin.com, as I've said throughout the podcast, is the uh, the website that I use. It's where I grab my information. There is a lot of information out there. So if you're seeing different numbers or different averages, well, it's because it's coming from different information. Rather than going to 15 different websites and then trying to make heads or tails of it. I've stuck with the one website. I actually don't look at any of the others, 538. Um, I know there's a few different ones out there. I'm sure they're all good, but from the beginning, I chose this one. Uh, I don't really know why, but in order to have some sort of you know, symmetry and consistency with the podcast, I just felt like I needed to pick one and stick with it, and so that's what we're doing. So according to 270win.com's current numbers. The locks and the, uh, the, the the states that are definitely going to go to a singular candidate and the states that are likely to go to a candidate have the current number of electors at 212 for Joe Biden and 125 for Donald Trump. Now, you may say, wow, that's a blowout. It's over. Well, no, it's not because it takes 270 to win and it doesn't matter how close you are to 270 if you don't get 270. Um, Al Gore, I think, I did not look this up, and this is what happens when I speak off the top of my head, but Al Gore, I believe, got 268 electoral votes in 2000, and he didn't get to be president because it takes 270 to win. Maybe that's why I picked the website. I kind of like that concept. So here is the path, the narrow road, as I called it. The path for Trump is very, very simple. If you go to 270win.com's website right now, you will see that there are five states they list as toss-ups. Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, and Georgia. Those five states all together account for 84 electoral votes. So step one for the president to get to re-election right now is he has to win all five. Now, of course, there are other ways to do it, but this to me is the, the most likely and most direct way that you could see Donald Trump win on next Tuesday or next Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, whenever the election is actually finished. We'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. You got to sweep all five. So we're going to go through those five states and kind of talk about what the polls are telling us in each one right now to see how likely it is that Biden or that Trump can sweep all five of these states. We'll start with the big prize on that five. That's Florida and it's 29 electoral votes. Biden right now, the, and it, let me just kind of remind you how this will be done. The average that I give you or the number that I give you of the, which candidate is ahead, it is an average of the last 10 polls that have been done uh, in that state. So right now, Biden has a 0.2% lead. So two tenths of 1%. In the last 10 polls uh, taken, which 
we're getting a lot of polling every single day now. So the last 10 polls actually only takes us back one week to October 21st. Biden has eight polls where he is leading, whereas Trump only has two. A Rasmussen poll from the 23rd of October had Trump winning 49-46. And then there were three different polls from the 25th, 26th, and 27th that have uh, Biden winning 50-48. to So all four of those polls that have been done in the last few days, and I guess technically all 10 of those polls have been done in the last few days, but the most recent versions of all of those polls are within the margin of error, which is very, very important to remember when we talk about the polling. You know, a lot of people point back to 2016. I was one of those people and kind of went through the numbers to show just how bad the poll were leading into that election, just how inaccurate they were. There is a margin of error considered in polling. Anytime you read polling data, it will say X number of people were polled with a margin of error greater or minus some sort of percentage. And usually three, three and a half, four percent is the margin of error. It's a statistical um, concept that when you are doing polling and you are projecting polling that you are sampling a small number of people to try to project over a large number of people and that there is inherent error going that's going to be involved in that poll. So for so many of the polls that we're seeing now in some of these states that are getting a lot tighter, when you talk about Biden leading by 0.2%, that doesn't mean anything. In the same way that a poll that shows Trump leading by three, well, if the plus minus on that is three and a half, well, that same poll is saying to you, hey, he may be losing by half a point. And if he would be, we would call ourselves right. Man, I wish I could be that wrong in my job, right? Um, so all of the polls in Florida are within the, the, the margin of error right now, which means it is insanely tight. I will go with history that I think Florida will probably go to the president, but that is a very close race, as is the next one we're going to talk about. One of the polls are states that have been very tight from the very beginning, um, North Carolina. So right now, North Carolina's uh, average has Biden leading by a 1.2 percentage um, in the last 10, which again dates back for this state. It dates back to the 20th of October. Biden is leading in seven. Trump is leading in two. And there's a tie. Now. Um, there were four different polls released uh, yesterday, and of those, three have multiple polls from the same polling company. So I want to kind of dig in to those three right now. So three polls that came out yesterday, and they all had comparable polls from the same polling company in the last few weeks. So Survey USA had it tied. So that's 4848. Uh, uh, just a little bit. Earlier in the month, so on the 13th of October, that same poll had it 50 to 45 in Biden's favor. So a five-point lead for Biden. Two weeks later, it's a tie based on the Survey USA poll. Reuters, they currently have it 49-48 Biden just a few days earlier. So this, this poll came out on the 27th. Uh, on the 20th of October, they had it 49-46 Biden. So they've got Biden with a three-point lead on the 20th, and by the 27th, that lead is down to one. Public policy poll has a bit of a bigger lead for Biden 
5147 is what they currently have it at. It was 50 to 46. So that last poll uh, was taken on the 5th of October. So a four-point lead at the beginning of October. Public policy has it here close to the end of October, still a four-point lead, each candidate having one percentage point up, but the margin of victory staying the same in the public policy poll. So as I told you at the beginning, we talk about polling and what we're looking for is trends. And so what I am seeing in North Carolina is Biden was leading in a lot of the polls. He's still leading in most of the polls, but the margin of that lead is small. So it seems like the president for how, I don't know what he's doing to close well. As I've already said, I don't feel like either of these candidates is closing well, but Trump seems to be narrowing that gap in North Carolina if there's a gap to start with. Uh, again, all of those, except maybe the public policy, I cannot say for sure because uh, I did not write the number down, but all of the, the, definitely the Survey USA and the Reuters poll that I just talked about are definitely within the margin of error. We move to Ohio. So Trump currently has a uh, 0.8% lead in Ohio. Uh, since the 24th of September, that's how long the last 10 polls go back. Uh, Trump is leading in five, Biden leading in four, and there has been one tie. This is the first time, but not the last time, that I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, the way the polling is being done to me tells a lot. There have been no new polls in Ohio since the 22nd of October. Contrast that with Florida, where there have been six polls done in the last four days. Now, you... There could be a lot of different reasons for that, and you could go to the website tomorrow, and there could be two or three new polls for Ohio, but all I have to go on is what I have right now, today, when I'm recording, and it tells me that Trump's going to win Ohio, and everybody doing the polling kind of knows that, and so rather than continue to take polls and spend the time and the effort that it is, it's going to take to continue polling Ohio, I think it's pretty obvious at this point, even though the average is only 0.8%. I think that had been trending in Trump's favor for a while, and it seems to me that Ohio is going to go to Trump. We move on to Iowa, and it's six electoral votes. Biden has a 0.8% lead. You notice in the trend, this is very close in all of these states. The last 10, and the last 10 in Iowa go back to September 30th. Biden leads in five, Trump leads in two, and there are three ties. The interesting thing that kind of jumps out to me about Iowa is in all of the polling, there is a consistent low percentage of the vote being calculated for the two main candidates. So the averages right now are Biden with 47.2% and Trump with 46.4%. That makes up the 0.8% gap that I said was uh, in favor of Vice President Biden at the beginning of the Iowa section here. That means that 6.4% of the electorate is not accounted for right now amongst the averages for those two candidates. So I dug in a little bit deeper on that to see polls that included the third party candidate. And in all of the polls that included third-party candidates, the third-party candidates were not polling more than 2%, which means there's about 4% of the electorate that seems to still be out there in Iowa. And while 4% doesn't sound like a lot, when the, the gap for Biden is, on, is less than 1%, 4% is huge, because if it doesn't break even, that's 
that 4% seems like it's going to, uh, that's going to be the deciding factor in the election. So Iowa is very, very interesting because there is that big number, relatively large number, 6.4% out there. And it doesn't seem like the third party candidate is going to actually pull all of that. So there must be some undecided voters in Iowa. I can't imagine anybody seeing these two candidates over the last few months and being undecided, but maybe they are. Um, I don't know. We'll finish up with my home state of Georgia. Right now, Biden has a 0.4% lead according to the last 10 polls. So we're going to dig into this a little bit because I actually ran the numbers on all of this on Monday. Was going to record on Monday, got busy with my real job, and so my hobby had to be put to the side and came back to redo the numbers today because I knew that they would have changed on Monday. Trump was up by 0.6%, and on Wednesday, Biden's up by 0.4% in the average, and I, I was very surprised by that. Let's throw out there the last 10. All of these 10 polls have been taken since the 13th of October. Biden leads in four, Trump leads in three, and there are three ties. Now, the reason there was such a big jump was just yesterday, there was a civics poll, C-I-V-I-Q-S, that's the company. Uh, a civics poll that was released on the 27th has Biden leading 5146. Now that jumped off the page to me because even though Biden was leading in four of the 10 uh, polls, none of the other polls had Biden leading by more than two. So to see a six point spread was very surprising. So I went deep into that particular poll. That same poll has John Ossoff beating um, David Perdue 51 45. And that same poll has uh, Warnock in the open, pri or not open primary, but in the, the, the seat uh, that Kelly Loeffler is trying to defend, uh, has the Democrat candidate Warnock getting 48%, Doug Collins 23 and Kelly Loeffler 22%. So I feel like it is necessary to go ahead and tell you the 0.4% lead for Biden to me is not real. I don't think there's any chance in this world. I don't care how much of an optimistic Democrat you are. There's no chance in this world that Biden's up 5%. There's no chance in this world that Ossoff is up 6%. It's just not right. And so I'm not sure, you know, what the issue is with this poll, but it is an outlier poll, but it is very recent. So it affected the numbers here. So uh, I, I crossed this out. I, I was going to say uh, that if Ossoff beats Purdue by six points, I will do fill in the blank. I'm not going to say that because it's stupid. Um, but I will just tell you that there's no way John Ossoff's going to beat David Purdue by six points. Uh, Ossoff could win, but he's not going to win by six points. So uh, very interesting how things are going in Georgia. The Democrats obviously have been trying to flip Georgia. Uh, really since 2008, they put a lot of time and effort into Georgia. They have not been able to do it. President Obama wasn't able to do it twice. Uh, obviously, Hillary Clinton wasn't able to do it in 2016. It will be interesting to see if Joe Biden is finally the man to flip Georgia uh, back to the Democrats for the first time since 1992 when Bill Clinton carried Georgia. Uh, I don't think they will be able to. I, I just, I just don't. I think this is... Uh, speak this being Georgia is is a red state. It's been a red state for a very long time. While I don't think a lot of people in Georgia have been very enthusiastic about the president, um, 
there's a difference between not liking Trump and voting for Biden. And I think that's what you're going to end up seeing. I think uh, Trump will end up winning 52, 53 percent of the vote in Georgia. Close. I mean, definitely close. Not a blowout on any uh, level, but I would expect Trump to win Georgia. So the point of this exercise is to say that there are five toss ups right now. And for Trump to really have a legitimate opportunity to win the presidency, he needs to run the table on those five. That would give him 84 additional electoral votes, which would then update the numbers that I gave you earlier. Biden would then have 212. And if Trump swept all five of those states we've just run through, he would have 247. So he would be in the lead. But then we come to the problem for Donald Trump, which is that there, he can sweep those five and only get to 247, and as we know very well, it takes 270 to win. So that kind of leads us into the lean category, and so we're going to be back to talk about leans in just a moment. So as I have already laid out in the podcast today, it is an uphill battle. If you're looking at the polling from a Republican point of view, it's an uphill battle for Donald Trump at this point. So we just kind of discussed if he can sweep Ohio, Iowa, Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina, then Trump can get to 247 electoral votes. And that will basically be the jumping off point for the rest of our conversation today. There is only one state that is currently listed on 270towin.com as a Republican lean. That is Texas. Uh, I did not go deep dive into the numbers for Texas because, honest to goodness, the numbers don't matter. As I said a few weeks ago on the podcast before the first debate, if Trump doesn't win Texas, this is going to be a blowout. Texas has 38 electoral votes, and uh, there is no math. There is no combination. There is no miracle to be had for Donald Trump if he does not win Texas. Um, so there's no reason to even talk anymore about it. You have to assume for the sake of argument to figure out if Trump can win this election. He has to win Texas. So if you're watching results come in on election night and Texas goes to the Democrats, then you can turn the TV off. The election is over. It does not matter. It's a matter of math at that point, And there's no path to the White House or back to the White House or to stay in the White House, however you want to say it, there's no path for Donald Trump without Texas. So we then turn our attention to the 78 electoral votes that are currently listed as leans toward Vice President Biden. So we're going to go through this. We're going to kind of go in order of uh, the biggest prize down to the smallest detail. So we'll start with the big one. So if, again, we're looking at this from the president's point of view. If he has 247 after sweeping the toss-up states right now, that means he needs 23 electoral votes to stay the president. 20 of those are available in the great state of Pennsylvania. Right now, and right now being Wednesday uh, at whatever time it is right now, uh, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Vice President Biden has the lead in the average polling by 3.6 points. Now, you may think, especially relative to the toss-up states that I was talking about a few minutes ago, that that sounds like a lot. Uh, when I ran these numbers on Monday, the vice, former vice president was winning by 7.2 points. So quite literally, according to the average on 270 to win.com, in the last two days, Biden's lead was cut 
from 7.2 to 3.6, which is half for all you math majors out there. Now, that is not uh, indicated, that, that cut is not indicated in the last 10 that goes back to the 21st of October because Biden still leads in eight, Trump leads in one, and there's one tie. So in the last two days, there have been five polls published. Let's dig into them a little bit. Of those five polls that have been published in the last two days, the University of Wisconsin put out a poll, and they have it 50 to 44 in favor of Biden. Reuters put out a poll, 50-45 in favor of Biden. And Civics that we talked about, where the poll just seemed completely and utterly backwards and wrong uh, in Georgia, that, that Civics poll uh, in Pennsylvania has Biden leading 52-45. to 45. So all three of those polls, very comfortable leads for Vice President Biden. An insider advantage poll uh, published in the last two days has the race 48-46 for Trump. Now that's confusing to me because you have three polls where it's not close and Biden's leading big. Then you have this other poll taken at the same time where Trump is up two. Now, I compared that insider advantage poll to another insider advantage poll taken uh, on October 15th. That poll had Biden leading 46-43. So what's interesting about that is in both of those polls, the more recent poll where Trump was winning by two and the poll from about two and a half weeks ago now where Trump was losing by three, Vice President Biden had 46 in both of those polls. So I'm not trying to draw a conclusion off of that, but that was interesting to me that the number for Trump went from 43 to 48, and that changed the outcome of the poll. Now, obviously, whether we're talking about 43, 48, 46, none of those numbers are 50, and that's going to take 50 plus one to win the state of Pennsylvania, assuming, you know, that a third-party candidate doesn't pull down a lot. So that's interesting. The Trafalgar poll, which is the fifth poll taken in the last couple of days, had it 48-48. That was the tie. Um, and then the same Trafalgar poll from the 19th of October had it 48-46 in the vice president's favor. So I can't say that things are looking good for Donald Trump in Pennsylvania, but it does seem to be getting tighter. It will be very interesting. and. Please hear, I am coming at this completely from a political and a number standpoint. I am not saying anything about anything else. So please do not hear what I'm not saying. It will be very interesting to see how the, uh, the recent actions of the police in Philadelphia and the last two nights, thousands of people taken to the streets in Philadelphia to protest uh, an, an officer involved shooting there. It will be interesting to see if that has an effect on the race itself. I don't know what the effect would be. I'm not saying that that situation is good for either candidate because I don't know that that there's a way to not just a, not a way to quantify that, but I don't know how it would influence the race either way. Uh, I guess it would be if you look at it and you say there's another officer involved shooting and the problem is the police, well, then you're probably going to vote for Biden anyway. At the same time, if you looked at it and you said, ah, oh, there's more rioting, this rioting is ridiculous. If that's your the way you're thinking about that situation, you're probably voting for Trump anyway. So maybe it will have no effect, but it's at least something to consider over the next couple of days because it is a big event happening in a state uh, that is 
just from Monday to Wednesday, judging by the polls, it's getting tighter in Pennsylvania. Um, Michigan, not so much. Michigan and its 16 electoral votes has the average of Biden leading by 9.2 points in the last 10. There have been nine polls where Biden leads. There's only one poll that Trump leads. Now, the last 10 goes all the way back to the 21st of October, and the poll that Trump was winning in was from the 22nd of October. And in that Trafalgar poll, Trump led 47-45. Since the 26th, so just in the last couple of days, four different polls have been published. The margin of uh, lead for Biden in those four polls was 10, 9, 7, and 7. So my question, which will remain rhetorical for a few more days, is why would this be considered a lean? You know, if, if, if somebody is polling and they have the average is a 9.2 lead and the most recent poll had one candidate winning by 10 points, how, how is that not a pretty done deal? And I say it's rhetorical, even though I think we know the answer. It's because the polling was so bad four years ago that nobody feels comfortable, especially in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, some of the three states that had big leads for Hillary and Trump ended up winning. Uh, nobody feels comfortable. Not until the votes are actually counted and, and we're not polling anymore. We're actually seeing votes. Nobody's going to feel comfortable putting Michigan in uh, the category for Vice President Biden. So we'll see how that goes. It it feels like Michigan would be a reach for the Trump Trump campaign right now, but they are having rallies there. So they obviously feel like the magic that they pulled off four years ago is at least possible again. Arizona uh, is the next lean, and, and, and you'll notice something here. Biden was leading in Pennsylvania by 3.6. That's considered a lean. Uh, he's leading by uh, 9.2 in Michigan, and that's considered a lean. Arizona, to me, is a little bit of an outlier here because Arizona and its 11 electoral votes has Biden leading by 1.4 points, and yet it's in the lean column. Let's go back in my notes and tell you that Biden was leading in North Carolina by 1.2. So 1.2 in North Carolina, that's a toss-up. 1.4 in Arizona, but that's a Biden lean. I'm not really sure how the website is, you know, kind of quantifying this at this point. I, I don't know if it's because it's been going in Trump's favor, but it had been in Biden's favor for so long that they feel like calling it a lean. I don't know. But Arizona and its 11 electoral votes, uh, the last 10 polls go back to the 15th. Biden was leading in eight. Trump was leading in one and one tie. But, but it's getting tighter. And we can see that it's getting tighter when we just take uh, one poll and then compare it to a previous poll. So we'll start with the Ohio um, Predictive Insights poll from the 27th. It had Biden leading 46 to 49, or sorry, 49 to 46. That same poll two weeks earlier had Biden 50 to 47. So that is not tighter. Sorry. Uh, I led into that pretty poorly. So that one had Biden with a three-point lead, still has Biden with a three-point lead a couple weeks later. The Reuters poll is the one that's changed a little bit. So currently, they have Biden with a three-point lead, 49-46. Uh, two weeks ago, or I'm sorry, a week earlier, it was 50-46. to 46. A morning consultant poll had uh, Trump leading. This is a morning consultant poll from the 22nd. Trump leading 48-47. 
back on the 13th of October, so just eight days before that morning consultant poll, the most recent poll had Biden leading 49-46. So it went from a three-point lead for Biden to a one-point lead for Trump. So it's still a lean for Biden, according to the website, which, you know, I, I said I don't really know how they quantify it. Basically, they take the numbers and their kind of expert predictions, and that's how they, they do likely lean and locks. So they still feel like Biden is is comfortable in Arizona, enough to put it in the same category as they are in Michigan. Um, but to me, Arizona would be one to keep an eye on because it's a lot closer, just statistically, a lot closer than uh, some of these others that are Biden leans. We're going to now move to some th- some states where Biden is leaning, and I don't understand why you don't just go ahead and put them in the Biden column. One of those is Minnesota with its 10 electoral votes. Biden is up by 8.8 points right now. In the last 10, he has led in every single one of those polls. Uh, I, at this point, feel comfortable saying that Biden will win Minnesota, which moves us to uh, Wisconsin. Um, Wisconsin also has 10 electoral votes up for grabs. Biden has a 10.7 lead. Uh, In the last 10 polls, Biden led in nine. There was one tie. There's been three polls published in Wisconsin uh, over the last three days. The University of Wisconsin poll had it 53-44 in favor of Joe Biden. A Reuters poll, 53-44 in favor of Joe Biden. So both of those has it have it as a nine-point lead. Listen to this one. ABC News released a poll just today, the 28th, 57-40 in favor of Joe Biden. Now, Four years ago, Wisconsin was supposed to go to Hillary, and it went to Trump. I don't think that's going to happen this time. Uh, as much as the Trump campaign that were just in Wisconsin, I believe, yesterday, when had a big rally. Uh, but the numbers that we're seeing do not indicate that Trump is closing the gap in Wisconsin. In fact, it actually is a, over the last three or four weeks, it's kind of tracked to increase the lead for Biden. So... This is another one of those, put a star beside it, and we're going to revisit this a lot on Monday, and I'll kind of tell you how Monday's episode is going to work, but if Trump ends up winning Wisconsin again, then we should never look at polling in Wisconsin ever again, because the polls in Wisconsin were so bad four years ago, and they would have to be even worse this year for Trump to carry it. So I think, based on what we're seeing right now, I think Biden wins Wisconsin. That moves us to Nevada. Six electoral votes, and Biden is leading by a little bit more than six points. 6.4 is the average lead in the last 10 polls. Biden has won every single one of them. Uh, Two polls that have been published this week, one by the New York Times, had Biden winning 49-43. One by the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So UNLV has a poll out, 50-41 to for Biden. I think Biden wins Nevada. And then that brings us to the last of the Biden leans, New Hampshire, and it's four electoral votes. Biden leads there by an average of 9.8 points. The last 10, you'll see a trend here. Biden 10, Trump 0. Since the first day of October, no poll has even had this in single digits. So that 9.8 is a true representation of where those polls are. There aren't a lot of outliers in there. It's a double-digit lead for Biden in New Hampshire. I think Biden will win New Hampshire. So just updating you on where we're at, if Trump runs the table on the five toss-up states, 
or sorry, if Trump runs the table on four false upstates, because now I'm getting into a little bit of a predictive place. I think Trump wins North Carolina based on what I'm seeing today. North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Ohio go to Trump. Biden takes New Hampshire, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And that means if those things happen and we combine them with the numbers we talked about earlier, it's 244 to 241, Biden leading Trump. Which means that right now, in what I am looking at, the election is going to be decided with Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and Iowa. Now, the reality for Trump uh, is that at 241, he still needs 29 electoral votes, which means that he could win a combination of Michigan and Arizona. But to me, Michigan doesn't really seem likely at this point. Iowa is way too close to really get a read on. Um, Before I saw the updated numbers, I thought Iowa was heading in Trump's direction. But the new numbers have me pausing just a little bit. So I think the most likely path right now for for Trump to keep the White House would definitely be winning North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and Ohio, getting to 241, and then winning Pennsylvania and Arizona. I think that's his ticket. I don't see Michigan at this point, even though I'm, I'm not prepared just because of the polling there last time. Um, I'm not prepared to think to say that I think Michigan goes to Biden, but it definitely seems like it's heading in that direction. And I'm not prepared to say anything about Iowa. But he can lose Minnesota, New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Nevada, Iowa, and Michigan. But if he wins Pennsylvania and Arizona by the numbers that I'm using right here, and there's no other surprises anywhere else, then Trump would still win the White House. So the path is narrow. The path is definitely narrow, but there is a path there. And so if you are a supporter of the president or if you're like me at this point and you kind of just want to disengage from whoever you support and you're just really interested in the numbers and math and in the sports-like competition that we have for the White House right now, um, it could be very, very close. What's insane about this election is that electorally, I believe it will be very close. I don't think either one of these candidates is getting to 290, which means it's it's you know it's basically going to come down to Pennsylvania because that's that's the numbers that you're looking at. I don't think anybody gets to 300. I don't think Trump will get as many electoral votes as he got four years ago, even if he wins. I think this is going to be a very close election in the Electoral College. When you get down to what we've talked about from the beginning is that this is not a national election. This is a series of 50 separate elections for president. The races within the race are extremely close, too. We talked about the numbers in North Carolina, the numbers in Florida, the numbers in Arizona and Georgia. This is going to be a very, very close election on the state level. It's going to be a very, very close election in the Electoral College. So the plan right now, is for me to come back on Monday, run the numbers one more time, and then make a prediction. Now, I don't do polling, okay? So I'm, I'm not polling anything. I'm not doing anything. It's just to wait to the very last moment to try to say, okay, come Tuesday, come election day, this is where it looks like it's heading. Right now, uh, I would not feel comfortable enough making that call. I do think Michigan goes to Vice President Biden. But that still leaves Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Iowa out there. I want to see more numbers from Iowa. I want to see more numbers from Florida and North Carolina and Georgia. I cannot see a situation where all of those states go to Biden. But if they did, obviously, then I'm wrong completely. And this is not a close election. and It's going to be a blowout. Um, 
But at this point, I think it's going to be really, really close, and I don't think anybody gets the 290, so it's going to be really, really close. So that's the plan to come back on Monday. I want to take a few minutes because Monday's show is just going to be numbers. There's not going to be any commentary. It's going to be numbers and a prediction, and then we're out. So we'll come back afterward, whenever the election is decided, and we have to go ahead and say now there's a very good chance that this election will not be decided by Wednesday at any point. Hopefully it does not drag on for weeks and weeks as the 20, or the 2000 election did, but I do think it's probably going to be Thursday or Friday. Um, it just depends on, you know, which elections we can call when. Um, Pennsylvania being one of the states that I think is going to be really, really close based on the numbers and where they're going right now, that state um, will be counting, they'll be counting ballots well into Wednesday, Thursday, perhaps even Friday, and if that's the case, it could be early the following week before we actually know the outcome of the election. So whenever the election is done and somebody has won, then I will come back and we'll kind of talk about polling versus real numbers, and we'll do that whole show. But Monday, all we're going to do is numbers and final prediction. Because of that, I want to talk a little bit about where we are in this country and what the next steps are, no matter who wins. And so we're going to talk about what it means going forward if Biden wins and what it means going forward if Trump wins. So if you don't want to hear that, turn the podcast off now. But if you are interested in kind of a little bit of an analyzation of what's next, stick with me just for a few more minutes. You're still with me, thank you. Hopefully I won't piss you off too bad here. Um, We're going to start with what happens if Biden wins. I think, as as I've already kind of said in the podcast, if the polls are right, Biden's going to win this election and he's going to be the next president. And so just to kind of, you know, spin it forward a little bit, if a Biden win, will, and the Democrats are definitely going to keep the House, the question is the Senate. It seems like the Democrats are going to have a pretty good opportunity to take the Senate. They they may or they may not. It may end up being 50-50, which means the presidency will then uh, essentially also earn you the Senate because the vice president would be able to cast votes uh, to break ties. So that's that's kind of its own thing. But A Biden win probably means that we get some version of the stimulus. It probably means um, the attempted expansion of the Affordable Care Act. You know, there is a case, everybody that was talking about the Supreme Court decision over the past few weeks uh, did not talk about Roe v. Wade, which seemed like that's where the Democrats were going to go with their opposition to Amy Coney Barrett. Um, They moved off of that kind of quickly and wanted to talk about health care because there's a case coming before the court over the next couple of weeks that's going to deal directly with health care. Probably won't have a decision from the Supreme Court well into 2021 on that topic. But Biden has said that his plan would be to expand the ACA and to, to continue making that not only the law of the land as it is right now, but to further expand it. And to me, what it sounded like was right now under the law, states have... Uh, the choice about whether to use Medicaid expansion as an option uh, under the ACA. And many states that are conservative have chosen not to do that, Georgia being one. It sounds like Biden's plan is going to be to move forward in that direction rather than giving states the option to kind of mandate that that's how uh, expansion of the Affordable Care Act will happen. Um, You would think that a uh, Democrat-controlled 
uh, House and a Democratic president would be able to get with, even if it is a Republican Senate, they would be able to come up with something uh, in the way of uh, stimulus, which seems to be, you know, something that most people agree there should be some sort of stimulus. The Democrats want to uh, have that very much not a we're going to send a check out to everybody like they have done in the past, uh, but rather have it kind of geared towards the people that they feel like need it the most. Uh, whereas Republicans, I think, seem more intent on if they do stimulus again, trying to help small businesses, which is for both of the parties, that's exactly in their wheelhouses. I think the big issue, big issue for me, I think the big issue in general, uh, if Biden wins, is going to be this issue of court packing. Now, if the Senate doesn't flip, then this is not an issue whatsoever because uh, Mitch McConnell will let court packing happen uh, over his dead body, quite literally, if the Republicans still uh, control the Senate. So, for people who might not understand what we're talking about here, there is a movement by the progressives in the Democratic Party, led by just the, the last couple of days, she has come out and said again, uh, led by AOC, that Democrats, should they win the presidency and the Senate, they should expand the number of justices that currently su- sit on the Supreme Court to offset the perceived six to three majority that the conservatives currently have on the court after Barrett was uh, confirmed on Monday night. Now, this number, the number of justices has been the same since 1869, but to change it, all you need is a bill in the House that is agreed on in the Senate, passes the House, passes the Senate, the president signs it, and you can make any number of Supreme Court justices that you want. So if the court expands, then the current president, the president who is in power at that time, would be able to fill out however many seats they expanded the court by. Uh, obviously, it would stay as an odd number, so there would be no chance of ties on major decisions. So the question would did be, with the Republicans having a 6-3 to three majority, would the Democrats add seats to take it up to, you know, 13? So you go from 9 to 13, add 4, so then you have... Joe Biden, you know, a point four people giving the, the liberals a seven to six majority, or would they want to kind of drive the point home? And maybe, you know, there's nothing stopping them from adding 25 seats, taking it up. Well, I guess there's 25, 24 seats and take it up to, to 35. And then you could, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous when I say that, but I, I don't know how much more ridiculous it sounds than, than the idea itself. Um, so that can happen. Under a Joe Biden administration, he has said that basically the way he will approach it is that he will put together a bipartisan commission to study what could be done about the federal court system and if any changes like that need to be made. Uh, That will not be enough for the left wing of his party. If he becomes president, they are going to want to do it, and they're going to want to do it fast. And the reason they're going to want to do it fast is that everybody in the House is up for re-election in 2022. And so uh, it, they would need to be able to move on it fairly quickly um, to get this entire process done before the midterm elections. And I would assume they would want to do it really quickly so they can hopefully establish it as the law and not spend the six or eight months leading up to the 2020, the 2022 midterms just dealing with this one issue. Um, it comes down to whether or not the left wing 
of the Democratic Party is going to be the controlling influence in this country. Now, there was a period of time when the far right wing of the Republican Party seemed to be taking a lot of power, and that was the Tea Party movement in 2010. And for a couple of years there, everything really did kind of move far right. But by the time we came around to the 2012 re-election of Barack Obama, that had kind of course adjusted. So it will be interesting to see if the court packing, the expansion of the Supreme Court, if that's something that the Democrats actually pursue, not just talk about, but actually pursue. I think that that is a long-term loser for the Democratic Party. I think it's a long-term loser for this country and a long-term loser specifically for the Supreme Court because I think it would be 1,000% likely if that happened that the next time, whether that be, and it, it could be as soon as four years from now, that the Republicans have the House, the Senate, and the White House all at the same time, they would just do the opposite. They would just add more seats to give the conservatives a bigger um, lead. The problem with that is that it would also take very little to bring the number back down. But you can go from, let's say the Democrats expanded to 13, the, the, the next Congress and the next president following Biden in this you know, hypothetical could come in and say, okay, hey, we're taking it back to nine, but you can't evict anybody off of the court. You'd have to just wait till people passed and then not fill those seats. Um, so it wouldn't work that way. You wouldn't have it where a, a left-wing movement happens, they expand the court, and then it course corrects and you have somebody come in on the back end and bring it back to nine because that process would not happen very, very quickly. So instead, you'd have the Republicans add more seats. Then you would have the Democrats add more seats. And so 15, 20, 25 years from now, by this plan, by this road that the Democrats are at least talking out loud in front of microphones and in front of media, that plan would result in, no kidding, 30, 40, 50 people on the Supreme Court 20 or 30 years from now. Because once they start that ball rolling down the hill, it is not going to stop until Somebody makes it stop by a constitutional amendment or something because there would be nothing stopping a Democrat House, Democrat Senate, and a Democratic president from doing this and doing it on January 21st. It could happen very, very quickly. And I don't say that to scare people, but that's just the political reality. They will have the political power to do it. And if they do it, I do think they will pay a political price probably as soon as the 2022 midterms. And I would assume probably the 2024 presidential election. And then you would only have the recourse for the conservatives to be to do the same thing, but try to do it better. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that would be. But I'm just walking you out of if Biden wins. To me, that is the biggest issue. Um, I mean, obviously, the pandemic is a big issue. But to me, it feels like the vaccine and the work that the scientists in this country are doing to combat the vaccine. I don't know if that it gets any better or worse under a Biden administration. I know the talking point from the Biden camp would say that they have a plan that they'll handle everything well. To me, it seems like we're going in a certain direction with this anyway. And I don't know that the presidency is going to change it a whole lot. I know a lot of people disagree with that. That's just my opinion. Now, let's kind of talk a little bit about what we could potentially see if Trump wins or what it means. So this is more of a kind of a pivot in, in this situation, obviously, if Trump wins the future of the stimulus virus, the legislation, because the House won't change hands, it, you know, 
you may have four years or at least two years of not a whole lot happening. The House is going to stay Democratic. If Trump wins, then he has veto power. Even if the Senate flips, he could just veto, veto, veto. He could be the veto president and just beat back all of this uh, legislation that the Democrats could send his way. Uh, and Donald Trump definitely does not strike me as the kind of guy that would want to sit down and work things out with the Democratic Congress. So I think we would be looking at least two years, probably four years of just complete and total stalemate uh, in this country. But I think the bigger issue, and, and this is from my own personal point of view, um, I am a 2007 graduate of the University of Georgia with a journalism degree. So the bigger issue for me that is if Trump wins, two things will happen. One, polling as we know it is dead because at the point that Trump wins this election, 2016 and 2020 will have showed me that there is no accurate way to poll in America anymore. I don't know what the problems are. I, I'm not smart enough to know that. I'm not inside enough to know that, but it's not accurate. Um, it wasn't accurate in 2016. There's a lot of, there's been books written on what could have potentially been the reason. There's the, you know, the silent majority concept that a lot of people said they voted for one candidate, but they really voted for Trump. A lot of people felt pressure to not say they voted for Trump, but they voted for him. You know, there was there was a lot of conjecture about why 2016 happened. But if we see it happen again in 2020, I think it really lends itself to a complete, uh, a, a more sinister and a more dark conclusion, which is that there are really really big problems that we have in this country with the media. And I will go and say that this, while the polling situation is kind of a, a dependent on the results of the election, I, I'll, I'll skip over all that and just say there's a big problem with the media in this country. Um, for a long time, you had MSNBC, which was a left point of view, and you had Fox News, which was a right point of view, and then everybody else was somewhere in the middle of those two. Um, that is no longer the case. Because for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's experienced journalism or experienced journalists that are retiring and a new age of journalists that are being hired and they don't have the same ethical standards as uh, journalists of the past. I don't know if it's the nature of media and the nature of information in 2020 that there's just too many there's too many column inches that have to be filled. You know, it's, it's not a newspaper anymore. There's endless room on the Internet. There's endless time on 24-hour uh, cable news. There's just too much space to fill, to be unbiased, to be able to report news without so much commentary. I don't know. But I know that I make myself, after debates, after the Barrett nomination the other night, I make myself flip around the news, uh, the cable news channels, and I try to spend about 10 or 15 minutes on CNN, on MSNBC, and on Fox, because if you watch one, you're not getting the truth. I'm just telling you that. You can pick any of them. I don't care how your political mind, like your political leaning. If you just watch Fox, you're not getting the truth. You're getting a version of the truth. You're getting parts of the truth. You're getting told some things that are true, but you're not getting the whole story. If you watch MSNBC, you're not getting the whole story. And unfortunately for me, because my go-to in the 2016 cycle and on election night in 2016 was CNN. And to me, it has become the worst of all of the cable news channels. They are completely and totally 
unabashedly anti-Trump. And I get it. I get the sentiment. I, I've already said on the podcast, maybe I shouldn't even be going in this direction. But I've already said today that I don't like the president's style whatsoever. So I get it. But to pretend that what CNN does now is news is a slap in the face to anybody in the history of this country that has ever done news. And to be quite honest, it is a slap in the face of the First Amendment. Because a free press is a vital piece to what has made this country great for the 250 plus years that it has existed. And that's because in America, there are checks and balances. In America, it's important that we have an informed electorate to make decisions. And we don't have an informed electorate now. Now, part of that is because the electorate doesn't want to be informed the way they've been informed in the past. The electorate's lazy. They just want to be told what to think. They want to be told who to vote for. They want to be told who's good, who's bad, and let them make their decisions after you told them what the decision should be. But on Monday night, the president of the United States was giving a speech introducing the newly um, confirmed justice to the Supreme Court, a woman whose, whether you agree with her politically or not, whose credentials are impeccable was being sworn in. And while Fox and MSNBC covered the speeches that both of those individuals, Trump and Barrett, gave and talked about the Supreme Court, at that same time, CNN was having a discussion with a couple of uh, quote-unquote doctors, because you can't see me doing the air quotes, and their chief political correspondent, John King, and the banner that they had on the screen during this conversation was... Um, potential super spreader event being held at White House after Barrett confirmation. So rather than covering the fact that there was a new justice to the Supreme Court, rather than having their chief political correspondent have a conversation about what I just had about what this means for potential future of the court, court packing, future cases coming before the court, uh, what implications this decision, the Republicans ramming, and I mean, let's be honest, they did everything that nothing the Republicans did in this confirmation process was illegal. Whether or not it was right or wrong all depends on your point of view, but it was by anybody's standard and uh, compared to past uh, nomination processes, it was very, very quick. So they rammed this through before the election. You, you cannot deny that. Even if you're happy that they did, it was fast. And they did it that way on purpose and for a purpose. Not They didn't even talk about that. No, we're going to talk about a potential super spreader event being held at the White House. It's dangerous when people pretend to be covering news and instead they just talk. And the reason that it's dangerous is because what's their opinion? Like the people who are, are pundits, okay, they may have... You know, if I think about CNN's kind of post-election or, or on election night, they have the desk, right? And so at the desk, you have Axelrod, you have, uh, you know, a guy like Vern uh, Van Jones, and you have the, uh, the throw-in Republican, Rick Santorum. You know, these people ha- are in politics, okay? And so they're experienced, and they, they have the ability to speak about different things. But 
that expertise that they have in the political field doesn't make their opinion any more valuable than anybody else's in this country. So if they're sitting there telling you and putting things in a historical context, then there's value in that because they know things. You know, if David Axelrod wants to compare how the Biden campaign is doing things compared to how the uh, Obama campaigns ran things in 2008 and 2012, he could speak with an expert opinion on that. But when you have these people sitting up there just telling you what they think about the president, why should we listen to them more than anybody else? Their opinion on Donald Trump, their opinion on even policy is no more valid than any other citizen in this country. And we have turned our cable news over to where now, if you're being honest with the electorate, you have to put news in quotation marks almost every single day on cable news. You know, Fox turned themselves into, if, if you try to watch Sean Hannity, I don't care how conservative you are, try to watch Sean Hannity, you'll turn it off. I feel the same way about Tucker Carlson, but it's hard to watch a lot of folks on Fox even if you are a conservative, just because they say ridiculous things. They come at it from such a biased and ridiculous point of view that it just doesn't feel valid. And unfortunately, that's where we are now with all of these cable news. And the cable news divisions have leaked over into the network news division. So if you just turn it on NBC, you're seeing a lot of those same talking heads. Turn on ABC or, or, or Fox or CBS. There's no such thing in this country anymore as news. If you read the New York Times, which used to be the paper of record for the United States of America, you're going to get a lot of opinion with a little bit of facts that they use to support the opinion they're trying to convince you of. There's very few newspapers. There's very few sources of information in this country anymore that will just tell you what's going on, that will just tell you the facts. And I started the podcast this year leading up to the election in an attempt to try to do just that to just try to talk about the numbers, to try to talk about the election without a lot of editorializing. And this episode has been uh, way more editorializing than uh, previous episodes, and I don't think there'll be as much editorializing moving forward. As I said, Monday we're going to give a prediction based on the numbers, not on my preference, and then we'll be back at some point with the last episode of the podcast to talk about what actually happened in the election Um and what it means not only for polls moving forward, but for the country moving forward. But I felt like today's podcast was necessary to be a little bit more editorial in tone, because in America, we get what we want. We get the politicians we deserve. If you're dissatisfied with the two people that are running for president right now, the two main candidates running for president, it's, uh, it's your fault. And it's my fault. It's all of our faults together because we have allowed ourselves to stop listening to fact, to buy into rhetoric, to be want to told what we want to hear, to choose our own facts, and to demonize the other side. It has not happened overnight. It has been a progression that has happened over the course of really the last 20 years or so. But we have to fix it. We have to fix it. We get the news that we deserve. The people that want to turn on Fox and just hear everything with a conservative slant so they feel better about their own opinions are just as much a part of the problem as the people that turn on CNN just to hear the Trump bashing. We need to be able to be honest about what's true and what's factual. And Donald Trump has hurt that over the last four years. His loose 
approach with the truth has caused the media to decide that their role is not informing us, but yet their role is influencing us because orange man bad. And the defeat of the orange man means that we'll sell out our journalistic integrity. It means we'll sell out our role in informing Americans as long as we do the ultimate service of getting rid of Donald Trump. And that is the way that CNN has done things for the last couple of years. It's sad, it's pathetic, and as somebody who knows what journalism journalism is supposed to be, I can promise you that it is not supposed to be this. We need to reject this form of media on both sides. We need to reject this low standard that we've allowed politicians to have. We need to hold our politicians accountable, and we need to get ourselves informed to know the difference between the rhetoric and truth. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. We'll be back on Monday with a prediction on the election. Take care. Have a great day.